Well, I'd like to give a, a very warm welcome to everyone here this morning. Good to have you here. What a privilege it is to join together in the worship of God to come under his word. Uh, just one notice to, to mention for church members to remind you that there's a, a church meeting uh, following the prayer meeting this Thursday evening. Well, the writer of our first song was certainly stirred up as he thought of Jesus and uh, who he was and what he had done, such that he wanted a thousand tongues to express the praise deserved to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We might not feel quite like that as we turn up this morning, but hopefully having a hymn like this and pointing us to the Saviour will begin to stir up the tongue that we do have and the heart that we do have in his praise. So we're singing our first hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise.
We're going to pray a prayer of praise and thanksgiving and then after that we shall have the children's talk. So shall we pray together? O oh Lord, our God and our Heavenly Father, we come to you and praise and thanksgiving this morning for the privileges of this morning. Lord, to be here, to have the energy and the health to be here, to have the desire to praise you, to have the blessings of having what we've had at the beginning of the day, of the food we have, the health we have, the facilities we have. We thank you that even those who are not able to be here, that uh, they can tune in and to watch the service and have the blessing and benefit gained through that technology. We praise you and thank you for the blessings which are so many that we have as a church. We thank you for our anniversary, which we were thinking of this week, and all that that represents, and all that that makes us think of, and the reminder we had from the message on Thursday evening of keeping to your word, and keeping the cross central. We thank you for the the children's um, activities, the ACE and the action events of Friday night going so well, so many being down here, such lovely weather for so much enjoyment and for your word being taught in those situations. We give thanks for that and all the workers involved in that evening. We give thanks for the privilege of coming together today and hearing your word. We give thanks for the prospect of a a wedding to be held here next Saturday and we pray for that to be a very happy, God-honouring and blessed event and that you will bless, bless Joel and Joanna on that occasion and their families. We thank you for their being baptisms in Cyprus this weekend as some of the African students profess faith in Jesus Christ. But most of all, we thank you for our Saviour, who we have just sung on, so we've just sung about. We praise you for him who is the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth and the life, the resurrection and the life, the vine, the one who gives living water, our righteousness, our friend, our Saviour, our companion, our teacher, We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and ask to be made increasingly grateful for him and all that he has done. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So if the children would uh, come up the front and Tony's going to do the children's talk. Thank you. Good morning. Sounds like I'm not switched on. Um, Well, you can hear me. I don't know if anyone else can. Really difficult question for you. What's this? A phone. Now, next difficult question. What can you do with something like this? Let's start there. Yeah. Play a game. I thought I'd get that one. Call someone. Call someone. Text someone. Text someone. Text someone. 
watch something, take photos of something. Anything else? Yeah? You can phone your mum and dad, yeah? You can search something. You know what? Yeah. You can see the weather. Yeah? You can buy something. I've got no more, Katie. You can tell what the time is. Okay, last one. You can sell something. You can sell something. Do you know what? When I was your age, no one had a phone like this at all. No one could take the phone round. In fact, if you wanted to phone your mum and dad, you had to go to a phone box, put your money in and call them. That was a bit of an effort, whereas now it's so easy. Now, what I want to talk about a little bit is what are these phones used for messaging? Because I was really surprised the number of you who said you can call someone. Because it seems to me that more and more people are sending messages rather than talking to each other. And I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story which some of you perhaps can identify with. Because if you talk to someone, imagine I was to say something to Flo, and it wasn't in front of everyone, and it wasn't desperately kind, and Flo went and told someone, that Tony's been really unkind to me, And I said, no, I never, that wasn't me, I didn't say that, she misheard me, she understood me. Well, it would be a case of, well, is Flo telling the truth? Is Tony telling the truth? Or is it just a little bit of a misunderstanding? Now, with messages, it's much easier to tell, because we could just flick down and say, ah, what's this message? What does it say? Oh, you did say that then, didn't he? And what I want to tell you is about, yeah? Ah, now you're already quite ahead of me. Because you think we could delete it. Well, I want to tell you my story, and then we'll see how somebody dealt with their message problem. And, well, the truth is, do you know what? Even if you delete things off your phone, people can still find them. But we'll come to that in the end. So, this lady, she has been accused of doing something really unkind. What she's been accused of is she's been accused of finding somebody's secrets and using her phone to send the secrets to the newspaper and the newspaper has published it so that everyone in the whole country can read it. And this has become a big argument. And a judge is having to decide whether this lady really did send these messages to the newspaper or not. So what do you think the judge said? Yeah? He asked the newspaper people. And do you know what? You're completely right. And the newspaper people said... We're not going to tell you because it's really, really important that if people bring stories to the newspaper, they're they're allowed to keep it secret. So that's a really good answer, but 
actually the, the newspaper people were protected from that. Yeah? You could intercept it. Well, the judge had a much simpler solution. He said, what I want to do is I want to see your phone. Now, I'll let you decide what you believe about this. Because the judge had asked to see the phone. And this lady told the judge... Well, you can't see my phone because I was out on the boat in the middle of the sea and I dropped it in the sea. Now, the judge has got to decide now whether he believes or not. But let's just, for our imagination, because we don't know, let's just imagine that she did it on purpose. She decided that she had sent the messages and she didn't want to be found out. Now, can you see what problems this lady might have if she'd done it on purpose and she didn't want to be found out? Yeah, Leah? She's lying. Well, that's true. Yeah? That's right. The judge might have sent some scuba divers to find it, or a fisherman might have found it by accident. Yeah? Yes. Do you know what? Sometimes people do that. They've been caught lying in court about something that wasn't really that big, and they end up getting sent to prison for it. Yes? She's a liar, yes. And do you know what? That's a, perhaps a, 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 another, another big problem. Any, yes, go on, one more. She might feel a bit guilty. Do you know what? I think she might feel quite a lot guilty. Can you imagine how worrying it would be if you'd done something bad and you knew your phone was down there and someone might find it? I wonder who else might know about it? And knowing... Deep down that God knows all about it. Now, God's better than a mobile phone. God doesn't just know our messages. My phone recognises my face. But God knows what's in our hearts. It's exactly what you're thinking. And do you know what? He never Never misses anything. So he knows what you've done. He knows what you think. He knows all the kind things you've done. He knows all the unkind things you've done. And do you know, the Bible tells us that one day, every one of us has ever lived will talk to God about what we've done, about what we've thought, about whether what we did or thought pleased him or not. Do you know what? I'd be a bit more worried about God finding out about what I'd done and me having to explain to him than just a judge. Have I got any good news? Well, yes, I have got some good news. Because God is good and kind. 
And God has said that everyone who trusts in Jesus, he's going to forget all the bad things we've done. And he's going to forgive. And I want to read to you a bit from the children's Bible that tells you that. So, this is what God does with the sin of those who love him. These are big words. They're not long words, but big ideas. He says, as high as the sky is above the earth. That's pretty pretty high, isn't it? So great is his love for those who respect him. He has taken our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the biggest distance you can imagine. The Lord has mercy on those who fear him, like a father has mercy on his children. So God will take away our sin and deal with it forever. It's like he throws it in the bottom of the sea and hides it in a way that no one will ever find it. And if God's forgiven us, then we might take the consequences for what we've done. But what really matters is that we're right with him and we can know him. So thanks very much for listening. You can go back to your seats now. Wow, let's sing together our second song. Our second song reminds us of the wonderful safety we can have through Jesus Christ and what he's done as our source of forgiveness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's stand to sing our second song.
Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you through Jesus and we come so grateful for uh, the security and safety we have in him and for the forgiveness we have through him, for the massive separation there is between us and our guilt and our shame and what it deserves and for all that's been achieved through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We thank you for him. Lord, we come to you in prayer today, praying for the blessing and good of our church and the churches that we're connected with and concerned about. We pray that days like this will be days which are, are days which encourage health in the life of our church, which encourage advancement, which make us more like Jesus which draw us close to you, which stabilise us and encourage us, which open the airwaves of fellowship. We pray for blessing on days like this and for our church to be strong and increasingly like Jesus. Lord, we come to you on a day remembered by many as Father's Day and we come thankful for the blessing of family life for the joy that it brings, for the happiness that it's brought in many homes today. We thank you for the blessing that is for children, the encouragement it is for dads. We pray that you would help fathers in their responsibilities, give them great hearts of love for their children, help them to lead the family uh, in its uh, life and Help them to be a lead spiritually, an influence for good, a model, an encouragement for their children. We pray for relationships between uh, fathers and children to be good. We thank you for those who act like a father into some situations and we pray that you would bless them too. We know that uh, Father's Day as well can be um, a sad day. Uh, Many have uh, lost their fathers over the years they reflect on that on a day like this. Some find that the whole area of fatherhood is one that's um, been difficult for them in strenuous and distressing situations. And we pray for those who feel the sense of sadness as well on a day like today. We pray, Lord, that we may know the sense of your fatherhood, of the joy of having a heavenly father, of being able to say, our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we do remember those who are going through difficult times. Uh, So many are connected with us who have had sad times and difficult times. Lord, we thank you for those who have um, come through periods of health treatment. We think of those who have been in hospital in recent weeks and who have come back out. We thank you for them. We pray that they will improve and recover and get better. We thank you for the love and concern that gets extended uh, to others at times like this. We thank you, Lord, for appreciation of normal health which we have and we thank you as well for the lessons you teach us through such times. 
We do pray then for blessing on the many who are recovering at this time. We pray for those as well in homes, in their difficulties, uh, feeling the, 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 the strain of older years. We ask that you would bless them and those concerned for them. Uh, we pray for the family of Rod Diaz as he has been especially uh, weak and uh, unwell this last day or so and is tremendously weak. We do pray that you would bless uh, Margaret and Jane in their concern for him. We pray too for Kathleen Rao as uh, she is due to move up later this week to Carlisle and to stay at least for uh, an initial long period with Andrew and Linda. We pray that she might know your companionship and help and steadying at this time. You would help her in her weakness and we pray for the family in a big adjustment for them and for Andrew and Linda particularly in their family in that concern. Lord, we thank you that you go with us through even the older stages of life and that uh, in front of us is a tremendous hope. We pray that we may be people who rejoice in hope, who are patient in trouble and who continue in prayer. Lord, we remember this morning as well those who are in smaller churches. We have the blessing of a, a reasonably large congregation and we love to see all ages here. We thank you for that. But we know that many meet with just a handful, uh, not many, and it disappoints them and discourages them. We pray that you would feed them with your word. We pray that you might add to them. We pray that you might help them in their mission and ministry, fellowship and worship. And as we come together with this privilege this morning, we thank you to have your word open. We pray that you would help Mark as he preaches from the passage that we've got to. We pray that the Spirit may open our eyes to give us understanding, to teach us what we need to know, to make us spiritually sensitive and to point us to Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, we turn now to our reading and we are continuing our series in 2 Kings and chapter 6 and 7. And it's quite a long passage we've got this morning. It's on uh, page number 312, if you're following in the Church Bible. It's a long passage, so we're going to read it in in two parts. I'm going to read part, and then Paul's going to carry on with the reading. And uh, really, the first part that I'm going to read makes grim reading. You'll realise that as we read it. And the second part that Paul reads makes glad reading. And this is our passage this morning that then Mark's going to preach on later on. So... 2 Kings and uh, chapter 6 and verse 24. It says, Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? 
She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him and on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, They went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let's go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. 
Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was listed with garments and equipment the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God has said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God has said to the king, two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seer of fine flour for a shekel. About this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Well, we look forward to hearing more uh, from that message or the message of that passage where Mark preaches, preaches to us after our next song. And our focus in the next song is being grateful for the word that God has given to us. As God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word, each from age to age proclaiming God the one, the righteous Lord. Let's stand to sing our third song.
But sometimes in life, we use the phrase, he's a man of his word, or she's a woman of her word. It means that it's someone who keeps their promises. They're someone that you can trust. Uh, they will do uh, what they say they will do. The free uh, dictionary online gives some examples of how you might use this in a, a sort of sentence. Bob, I'm a man of my word. If I tell you I'll be at your house tomorrow morning at 10, then that's when I'll be there. I've found Adam to be a man of his word so far, so I'm confident that he'll get us the best deal possible. If Charlotte said she'll help you move, then she'll be here. She's a woman of her word. Well, it's a good thing to be a man of your word or a woman of your word. Uh, It's a blessing to those around you. And it's a huge blessing as well if you've got people around you that you can trust. That you can trust what they say, that they will do it. Some of you have taken part in endurance races. And sometimes with uh, really long endurance races, you might have a support vehicle. Uh, You catch up at certain points on the trail. Now, if you're on an endurance race, what you really want is someone that you can trust, a man or woman of their word, that will meet you where you've agreed to meet them. What you do not want to be doing is being tired and hungry, getting to a point where you should meet them and they haven't turned up because, well, they didn't quite uh, do what they said they would do. It's good. If someone is a man or woman of their word, it's a good thing. But sometimes, someone being a man or woman of their word might not be quite such good news for you. So if you're in school and you do something wrong, and I don't just mean walking a little bit fast down the corridor, I mean you've done something properly wrong. You know you're in the wrong. And the head teacher finds you and he says, I want to see you at the end of school and I'm going to be speaking to your parents. Well, at that point, you might be hoping that something comes up in the day that makes them forget But you know that really deep down, they're a man or woman as they were. They will be seeing you after school. You know, God is a God of his word. What he says he will do, he will do. And he's not limited by human limitations like we are. Sometimes we we mean well when we say we'll do something, but we can't. God is not limited like that. All things are possible with God. So if he says he will do something, he will do something. And because God is good, and because we can trust him, that is an amazing thing for many of us. And I hope this morning that for many of us this will boost our confidence in God, and it will be like an injection of joy into our veins because we know that God will do what he said he will do and that is good news. But it is also a stark warning to some of us this morning that God will do what he has said he will do and that includes being a just judge of all of our lives. Well this morning we're heading back to around 800 BC, we're looking at the next episode in Elisha's life, it's recorded in 2 Kings 6, 24 to the end of chapter 7, it's on the screen if you forget. I suggest having it open, as you might have noticed it's quite a long passage, if you find that you get a bit lost with the sort of name places or names of people, don't worry too much, um, Maybe go home and read it after this. So much in here. I had to leave some of it out, quite a bit of it out really in terms of all the things you can glean from it. 
don't worry too much if you get a bit lost. I'll try and explain it. But follow along and, um, and there'll be some points that come up as we go through it for us to take away that I hope will be helpful for us. So we start off with a siege in 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 24. It says afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's about 40 miles north of uh, Jerusalem. And because of its uh, location and because it's got hills on three sides, it was described as almost impregnable. So um, rather than sort of try and take the city, the king of Syria uh, places Samaria under siege. Takes his entire army and he places uh, this Samaria under siege. This week I was reading about Sverodonetsk in Ukraine. Some of you might have seen about it in the news. Um, It's currently under siege. One of the uh, spokesmen said that uh, the residents remaining in the city uh, are being forced to survive in extremely difficult situations, circumstances. The UN UN has warned that thousands of civilians are trapped in underground bunkers and that um, the supplies are running low. Water and food is getting dangerously low. Many of us just can't imagine what it is like for them in that situation. Sadly, this isn't the first time that Ukraine has uh, had cities uh, besieged. In 1932 and 1933, they endured the Great Famine, is where Stalin removed food by military force. And uh, the Ukrainians called it Holodomor, basically means murder by hunger. And there were reports of cannibalism of babies and children because it got so extreme. And that should be horrifying for us. It should shock us. And the siege of Samaria that we've read about was no less horrifying. It's horrific what we see this morning. Now this siege, it must have gone on for quite some time because the, the Great Famine has developed. They've kind of run out of pretty much all their food Prices absolutely skyrocket. I mean, we're concerned in this country, aren't we, about prices going up. Petrol and grain and things shooting up. But it just can't compare to what's going on here. This is another scale. A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a pint of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, there's different understandings of exactly how much that would be in today's money. But basically, it's exorbitant. Huge amounts of money, especially for a donkey's head. I mean, a donkey was considered unclean by the Jews anyway. And the head wasn't exactly the most uh, nutritious piece of uh, the donkey. It wasn't exactly on the top of the menu. People are not totally sure with the dove's dung, whether it was used for fuel or for eating. I have read about famines where people have eaten it. Um, Some people think it's a picture of sort of carob pods. Not 100% sure, but... But the overall picture is pretty clear. The overall picture is that these people are desperate. Sometimes you get it, don't you, where, uh, say, you're watching the news and and they choose one particular family or one particular person and they'll follow them around for a bit or they'll interview them. And it helps us just understand what life's like, doesn't it? Well, you can hear all these big numbers and these big situations and not really get it, but sometimes when you see someone living it, it helps us understand what's 
what it's like. And we get this here. We meet a woman. And she cries out to the king of Samaria as he's passing by. She wants his help. And at first he's like, how can I help? If God's not helping you, how can I help? But then when he hears the reason for her wanting help in verses 28 and 29, he tears his clothes in grief. And I'm not going to read it. We've had it read once. I'm not going to read it again. It's a Sunday morning. It's horrific. Read it for yourselves. If you've got it open, 28 and 29, it's a horrific situation. To call it desperate is an understatement, I feel. This mother who is more concerned about justice than her child... It's a desperate situation. But this siege isn't just happening because the king of Syria decided to attack them. Years before, Moses had um, it, it told the Israelites about God's promises. The Israelites, God's special people, and Moses had given them these promises. If you obey me, if you follow me, follow God, then I, God, will bless you. I'll protect you. You'll have plentiful food. Things will be good. But if you're disobedient and you turn away, then God says, I'll hand you over to foreign armies. And Moses warned them further that these foreign armies would besiege them. And listen, this is what it says in the Bible. It says, even the most gentle and sensitive men among them would have no compassion on their family or wife or children. And the most gentle and sensitive women will secretly devour her own children. And here in two kings, this comes to pass. This happens. God has warned about it, and now it happens. God is a God of his word. The people had consistently rejected God. They pushed away his ways. And God says, okay, I'm going to hand you over. And these other nations will come for you and you will have no protection. Without God, they are in a desperate situation. Now, it is important to note here that I am not saying uh, that the war in Ukraine and that the wars around the world are because of God's specific judgment on those nations. What we're looking at in this story is in the Old Testament. It's God's special people that he made special promises and special warnings to. So it is a bit different here but but war and famine and worry and illness and death and crime and the list could go on all these things should not exist in this world but they do because we have been disobedient to God as humankind we have been disobedient right from the beginning right from chapter 3 of the Bible we've been disobedient and these things give us a bit of a taste of what Life is like without God. Perhaps you think you don't need God in your life, that we could get away without God. Perhaps you think life would be so much better without God. Well, this gives us a start warning. This is a picture of what life is really like without God's protective hand, without God's mercy, without God's kindness. You know, the Bible warns us that without God, we are in a desperate situation. Like the Israelites, we too are are warned that if we continue to reject God, then we will face the full judgment of God. God is a God of his word. It will happen. 
And we will be separated from him. And that is the worst thing that can happen to us. The Bible describes it as hell. And it's not something that I enjoy talking about, but Jesus talked about it more than anyone else in the Bible. And why did he do that? He did it because he loved the people that he was talking to. And he wanted to warn them of the seriousness of rejecting God. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to say that without God, this is our first sort of learning point this morning really, that without God, we are in a desperate situation. That's what we've just been understanding. Without God, we are in a desperate situation. So how does the king of Samaria respond to this woman? Well, back to uh, 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 30. The king tears his clothes with grief at what's going on. But it's not a sort of tearing the clothes of repentance. There's grief there, but he doesn't turn to God in repentance, saying, God, please help. He turns angrily to God, and he demands that Elisha's head, God's prophet, that Elisha's head is removed from his shoulders. He blames God for what is going on. And perhaps we can be a bit like this sometimes. We blame God for things when perhaps actually the right reaction would be that we come to God in repentance and we say to God, I'm sorry, please come and help me in my situation. So often that would be the right response and yet so often actually what we do is we turn it back on God and say, God, this is your fault. Why are you treating me like this? So the king sends this messenger to Elisha and this messenger, I mean it's quite a nice word really, messenger, he's basically an assassin. This king sends him to, to kill Elisha. The problem that the king's got is that if you were here last week, you know that Elisha is God's prophet and God knows all things. So Elisha knows full well that this assassin is coming. <laughs> if you're going to pick on anyone, don't pick Elisha because he already knows your plans. So Elisha says to the elders that he's with, block the door. Don't let this guy in when he comes. And sure enough, he comes a little bit later and he's, he's blocked. Elisha survives. A bit later, the king comes, and, um, and they sort of, it seems like they're communicating sort of through this door. And the king, through his messenger, sort of says, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He sees blaming God. Why should I wait for God? This is his doing. I'm, I'm fed up of waiting. But it's a very different attitude here to the attitude of King David, who says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and heard my cry for help. See what David does? He waits for the Lord and he cries out for help. That's what this king should have done. So the next sort of learning point really, we need to turn to God, not from him. So quickly we often turn away from God. We learn here, don't turn from God, turn to him. Well, Elisha then goes on to tell the king why he should wait patiently. Why would it be a good idea? Well, we're used to hearing 24-hour weather forecasts, aren't we? We now get a 24-hour food forecast. This is the start of chapter 7. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour should be sold for a shekel 
and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. This is an incredible thing that God promises them here. Now, these prices aren't super cheap. It's not like it's gone back to super cheap prices. But the point is, is it's now manageable to get those things. And, of course, flour and barley is far more appealing than dove's dung and a donkey's head. And all of this is going to be readily available at the gate of Samaria. But not everyone believes Elisha, or believes God's word through Elisha. Verse 2, Then the captain of the army of Samaria, the right-hand man to the king, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He's sort of saying, even if God kind of opened up doors or windows in heaven and just kind of poured food down, no, he can't do it. Even God can't help us now. It's basically what he's saying. And in some ways, his disbelief is, is completely understandable. I mean, humanly speaking, this, this is impossible. What Elisha has said is impossible. But God is not limited by human limitations. God is the God of the impossible, and God is a God of his word. What God says he will do, he will do. So this captain should have believed. He was an army, uh, he was a captain of the army of God's people. He, he would have known something of God. But he didn't believe God's word here. And you know, God takes disbelief seriously. Elisha says to the captain, he says, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Says his captain, because you haven't believed, you're going to see it, but you're not going to be able to enjoy it. We're left wondering quite how that's going to work. How is it going to be that he's going to see it, but not eat it? We find out a bit later on. But this is something for us to take in. Disbelieving God's word is a serious issue. You know, this book here that we've got, that we we read from every Sunday, spend a good amount of time looking at it, is filled with God's words for us. You know, we're, we're not given this book as a sort of optional extra in church. It's not a sort of nice book to read, lots of lovely things in it. It's not the sort of book that we can kind of take it or leave it. We shouldn't come to church and think, mm, yeah, maybe that bit was good, but I'll leave that bit. You know, this book teaches us how to have true life, teaches us how to know God, teaches us how to know joy to the max. How do we receive those things? Simply by believing these words. Faith in his word. But you know, if we don't believe, the Bible warns us that that we will have the same consequences as the captain. That we will see other people being blessed with the things in here, blessed with God, but we ourselves will not be able to enjoy it. Disbelieving God's word is a serious issue. Well, God has made this promise that in 24 hours there'll be plenty of food available. And now he gets the wheels in motion. Our camera, as it were, swings kind of outside the city and it swings to the city gate. And we go from sort of meeting the the king of Samaria and um, the captain and we go to meet four lepers. We go from meeting the sort of the highest people in society to the rejects, the outcasts. Like everyone else, 
They are desperate. And they are in the middle of some quite literally life or death decisions. We can listen in to their conversation. This is in uh, verses 3 and 4. They say, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, well, the famine's in the city. We shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. I mean, we've got nothing to lose. We might as well go there. If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. Let's go over to the Syrians. And if they give us a scrap of bread, brilliant. So they get up at twilight in the evening and they make their way towards the Syrian army camp. Well, they get to the camp and it's empty. There's not a soul in sight. It's a bit like they've arrived at the Mary Celeste, completely abandoned. Now, there's different theories about why the Mary Celeste was abandoned, but we don't have to spend our time sort of worrying about why this might have happened because we're told. This is in verse 6 and 7. At the same time as the lepers were getting up to go to the camp, God was doing something to get the Syrians outside of the camp. You see, the Lord has made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us, the king of the Hittites and the king of of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. I mean, it's almost comical, isn't it? You've got this entire army of tough Syrian soldiers running for their lives because of some special audio special effects that God is putting on here. And so what do the the lepers find when they get to this camp? Well, they find food that could quite literally feed an army. And they find riches and they find clothes. So what do they do? Well, they eat and drink. They they take the silver and the gold and the clothes and they take it back and they hide it. And then they go back again. And they sort of doing this uh, going back and forth, carrying as much as they can. But then suddenly their their conscience pricks them. And they suddenly realise that as they're feasting, Back in Samaria, people are still starving. People are still committing atrocious acts just to survive. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning, light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. This is good news. This is too good to keep to ourselves. We need to share it. This is great. This is good. Let's tell everyone else. You know, if you ever wonder about why Christians always want to tell other people about uh, Jesus, if you ever find it a bit much sometimes, you know, it's because we've experienced the power of Jesus in our lives and we want to share that. We want everyone else to experience it too. It's too good to keep to ourselves. We want... We want people to know that Jesus gives the bread of life. He is the water of life. He's the one that satisfies. He's the one that gives us our our deepest need. As we want to tell people, this is too good to keep to ourselves. Before the morning, let's go and tell people. That's why Christians want to tell others about Jesus. So they go and tell the king. He gets out of bed and even though he's probably still waking up, his mind's working quite fast. And he hears about the fact that it's empty and he thinks, I know what this is, this is a trap. 
They've all hid in the woods. We come out, they're going to pounce on us and it'll be done. But just like the story of Naaman, the servant speaks some sense into their master. So why don't you at least investigate? Just send out a small group, two men, five horses, send them out and investigate. We're going to die here anyway. You might as well see. Well, it makes sense. So they send out this scouting party and they track the Syrian army and where they've gone. And it's dead easy to track them because there are just clothes and equipment and weapons just everywhere. And you just get this sense that these soldiers have left in a mad panic. And as they've been running, they've kind of been tripping over things and so they've just been throwing things and their, their sort of cloak is a bit heavy so they take that off and throw it down. This entire army just running away in panic. Anything which might slow them down just goes. So the people of Samaria, they come and they plunder the Syrian camp. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. What God has done here is a miracle, but what God says he will do, he will do. It seemed an impossible prediction, but not with God. He will do what he has said he will do, however unlikely it may seem. Well, we're nearly there, but there's one more piece of mystery. The captain, do you remember him? He was told that he'll see it, but he won't be able to enjoy it. Why not? Well, God said that it will happen, so we know it does happen. How does it happen? The king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to take charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. And in verses 18, 19 and 20 is almost just a repetition of exactly what happened. Because the writer of two kings really wants us to get this, that it happened exactly as God had said it would. See that? The man of God had said, and so it happened It's just repetition, but it's there so that we don't miss the fact that God said this would happen and it happens exactly as he said it would. So also our final sort of learning point, takeaway, application point. We should trust what God says because he is a God of his word. We should trust what God says because he is a God of his word. What God has said will happen, will happen, however unlikely it may seem. God is a God of his word. And for some of us, this is a warning. Hebrews 12 verse 25 tells us, make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. Do not reject the one who speaks. Instead, listen and believe. And God will deliver you and give you life in an even more miraculous way than he gave life to the people in this story. Through Jesus on the cross. Even more miraculous. But for those of you who are here, who have been saved, those of you who follow him, those of you who love him, I just want to finish with this. This should give us that boost of confidence, that injection of joy. Because these are the sorts of promises that we can hold on to, that God has made, that we know he will keep because God is a God of his word. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Is that good to hold on to that? We know what happened, because God is a God of his word. The one who has the Son has life. It's good news. 
No one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. That's encouraging, isn't it? We know God will do it. He'll keep that promise because he's a God of his word. And finally, I will raise them up on the last day. Speaking about believers there, I will raise them up on the last day. Isn't that good news? And we know God will do it because he's a God of his word. So, God is a God of his word and there are warnings there, but also great encouragements. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of your word. Lord, that we can trust what you say. But Lord, we know that comes with warnings. Lord, we've seen that you will do what you will say you will do, whether that be judgment or deliverance. Lord, I pray that we will take note of this, that it will be a warning to us. But Lord, I pray as well that for those of us who love you, for those of us who have been delivered, rescued, Lord, what amazing promises to be able to hold on to and to know that they will happen because you are a God of your word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the great rescuer God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing about the rescuer God now, the God, the only God who can rescue. We cannot rescue ourselves, but God is the one who rescues us. thank you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. Lord, I pray that you'd keep us as we go from this place. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember your word that we've heard this morning and that it would uh, impact our lives. Lord, be with us. Keep us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.